Well, today in our service, I've selected a very pivotal chapter in the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, and it's a passage that contains predictive prophecy early in God's story. Uh, all chapters are important in God's Word, uh, but there are certain chapters that are more focal than others. In other words, they are, they're crucial points that, that really set major trajectories for the way God's story unfolds. And uh, this is such a chapter. Uh, Genesis 49, at the, the beginning of our Bibles, really lays out in miniature the rest of the scope of God's story through Israel. It's, it's a chapter rich in prophecy and principles concerning the descendants that would come from Jacob's twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes. And uh, studying this chapter has been rich for my own soul um, because it not only involves the rich prophecies that it contains in the chapter, but it really brings the reader to a journey through Scripture. You have to trace the fulfillments of each tribe and see how it plays out in the course of the whole Bible. And that's an amazing journey. And it's a testament to the veracity of Scripture. So this is a weighty, and I'll admit it's a meaty passage in God's Word, but I trust we're not afraid of meaty passages in a a Bible church. We want meat because we want to mature in our minds and in our hearts and in our obedience because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is profitable for teaching and for rebuking and for correcting and for training us in righteousness, that we would be equipped for every good work. And so we want to draw out all the application that God's Word has for us. J.C. Ryle once said, nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. And Genesis 49 has a lot for us to apply And because I want it to be applicational, the title I've chosen for the sermon is Lessons from the Twelve Tribes. Lessons from the Twelve Tribes. And the more I studied and prepared, the more I realized this study is best broken into two sermons. And so this is really just part one, and then part two will continue next week. So we're going to draw lessons from the first four tribes today and then eight, which are sort of smaller tribes, next week. Genesis, of course, is a book of beginnings. And it's, as a book of beginnings, it's really the beginning of many things, but it's primarily the beginning of redemptive history. Uh, the whole Bible can be summed up as God's blessing reversing God's curse. Because everything He's drafted is from Him. God's blessing reversing God's curse. And of course, the blessing is the blessing of redemption and salvation brought by the Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, I want to remind us that the author of Genesis is Moses, writing to the twelve tribes of the Israelites who were getting ready to enter into the promised land. And it was to their benefit to read the origin of their purpose in God's redemptive plan. 
And the idea was really that uh, in line with the covenant made with their father Abraham, uh, there would be to them land, descendants, and blessing to the earth. Uh, That's what God covenanted as the plan to bring about this redemption in history. There would be land, descendants, and then blessing to the earth. Let me sort of play out how that looks. Uh, They would possess a land. Why land? Well, the land would be the stage of God's program of redemption. They would continue to multiply His descendants because they were going to be made into a nation who would be set apart to Yahweh as they lived by faith and obedience to Him. Set apart from the rest of the nations and acting as a kingdom of priests to them. And in doing this, possessing the land and living as faithful descendants, the overflow would be blessing for the rest of the nations whom God would draw to place faith in Him as they learned about His ways from this model nation. And the idea was that the whole of mankind from Adam would receive the blessing of promised redemption. Uh, This is the plan on paper. It sounds pretty good if they could pull it off. And that's really the point that God is ultimately setting up and that He's going to make in redemptive history. He's going to teach His people uh, that really no people, no nation, not even Israel as set apart as they were, no nation could remain good enough to usher in redemption. God gave the Israelites a conditional covenant through Moses, which we call the Mosaic Covenant or, or the Old Covenant. And the condition was that if Israel could live up to His law and live before Him to meet His standards, there would be blessing. And that blessing would overflow to the world. If not, there would be curse. You can read about those blessings and curses conditions at the end of Deuteronomy, also in Exodus. Now, why was Genesis 49 relevant for the Israelites who would attempt to live as God's kingdom of priests to the world? It's relevant because in this chapter, the blessing that has been passed down from Abraham into Isaac and to Jacob is now being pronounced with specific address to each individual tribe. So imagine you're an Israelite in your tribe. You're reading this and you're wondering how you ought to live in order to live and experience this blessing. Each tribe had its own unique identity within the nation. And it's striking, at least to me, that we often do not think about the nation of Israel in terms of its 12 diverse tribes. I can't even remember the last time I heard a real study of the individual tribes. Many can even barely name most of the tribes, let alone delineate them. I mean, we kind of know there are 12 tribes, but we don't often consider them in their identities. I would submit to you, based on Scripture, that if you're going to study Israel, you can't totally grasp the identity of the nation of Israel without understanding its 12 distinctive tribes. You can't totally understand it. 
I was trying to think of an analogy. The analogy I thought of was, uh, think about someone who wanted to study the United States. And they're just like, I just want to know about the United States of America. But I don't want to study the individual states. I don't really want to know the differences and all the stuff between the states. I just want to study the U.S. Well, the response to that is, it, you can't learn about the United States without knowing about the states. You have to learn about the diversity of the states if you're going to properly grasp what makes up the United States. I mean, the West Coast states are much different than the East Coast states. The Southern states are different than the Northern states. Alaska and Hawaii are different than just all the states. You have to study the states. In fact, there was a time in our nation's history where the states individually were the emphasis of the nation's identity. In fact, if you were having a conversation in the early part of our nation, you would be more likely to say not the United States is a nice place to live, but rather you'd probably hear one say the United States are a nice place to live. The nation was more defined by its representative states than as a federal unit. That's, That's a whole other topic. In the same way, Israel must be understood by its tribes. Many don't even realize these tribes are even different. We sort of imagine a large, kind of homogenous group of Israelites. They're kind of all the same. They all kind of dress the same, look the same, act the same. But when you really read the Scriptures through the Old Testament, the tribes are actually very diverse from each other. Uh, They have different lands and geography. They have different um, specialties and ways of life. Things they're good at. Uh, There's even an account in Judges that indicates they even probably had different dialects from each other. Uh, These are different groups, although the same nation. And what I'm going to do the rest of our time is simply go through the key points in the prophesied blessings upon each tribe and sort of show the shape of each one's identity, the characteristics. And of course, I'm going to show the application and fulfillment that there was for these historical 12 tribes. But as we're here in the 21st century as the church, I'm going to, of course, also glean out the important principles and, and nuggets Uh, that apply to us as God's people. Because each one has something for us to take note of. Uh, So let's jump in. Let's jump into verse 1, which sets the scene for this prophecy. Verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. The scene in verses 1 and 2 of the patriarch is the patriarch Jacob on his deathbed and with his 12 sons gathered around him. And it's really a, a solemn scene, but it's also one that's filled with insight and wonder. And just to sort of remind us of the setting, Jacob and his sons are in the land of Egypt. This is following the whole episode with the famine and Joseph. And they're, they're settled in this land that is not their own, not the promised land. 
And their descendants are going to remain there until the time of Exodus. As these sons gather around their father's bed, there there must have been multiple questions racing through their minds. What will become of us after Jacob dies? How long will we stay in Egypt? When's the promised land thing happening? Uh, From whom will the promised deliverer come? And it says here that Jacob called his sons, which could also be translated, he summoned his sons. Because he's about to speak with authority. It doesn't say it here, but the indication is that this is prophetic insight that Jacob has received from God himself to unveil the future. And it's in poetic form, which often is the case with prophetic literature and Scripture. This is what God has prescripted for human history through the tribes from the sons. And it's not just a matter of decades in these men's lives. These prophecies go through the centuries of redemptive history, even to the end. So many generations... And the word each man receives form the drama for the remainder of the Bible. And as we're going to see, now all of these words from Jacob will appear as blessings. Verse 28, which is later in the chapter, states that Jacob blessed each with a blessing suitable for him. That's almost a lesson in itself. A blessing is the bestowal of good and life upon someone Uh, For some people, that might be a specific prophecy of of prosperity. Uh, For others, it might be more of a rebuke. Take heed, and then here's the blessing. Some of the ways we can be blessed is when God sends someone to confront us so that we repent. And so some of these have more stinging words of rebuke that the future tribes might take heed when they're reading this. So let's go ahead and jump into the the huddle in that ancient room and and sort of listen in to what Jacob says to the tribes. It all begins as we would expect with the firstborn son. Verse 3. He looks directly at his firstborn, Reuben. I'm imagining Reuben right closest to him on the bed. Right there at his side. You are my firstborn my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. I, I do think Reuben would have been the most eager to hear what his father had to say, being the firstborn, because in the ancient patriarchal period, the firstborn son was typically the one who received the special birthright. And so as he's kind of dishing out blessings, the firstborn was supposed to receive a double portion of the inheritance. This means that if a father had 12 sons, like Jacob, he would divide his inheritance into 13 parts, and the firstborn would get twice as much as the others. And in addition to the inheritance was the continued position of being the new patriarch, the new leader over the family. Reuben's, he's listening. He's listening closely to what Jacob's got for him. And it's starting pretty good. Notice the glowing words Jacob begins with in verse 3. He refers to him twice as being preeminent. 
I mean, he's high up there. He's more than enough. More than enough dignity or honor. More than enough power. This is the son Jacob, when he was born, must have felt the most promise about and took great pride in. He says he's his might. He's probably groomed him from the time he was born, which is what probably gives him sorrow to continue with what he has to say. Because for Reuben, the hammer is about to be dropped with Jacob's next words. Look at verse 4 from Dying Jacob. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now these words must have been a kick in the gut to Reuben. And no doubt Jacob had sorrow to make these words of a son who had such potential. You have double preeminence. Now you're going to have none. No birthrights. Forfeited. And he gives him a reason. He tells him that he is unstable as water. Some versions say uncontrolled as water. The word, I kind of did a study on it, the word has the idea of water that's boiling over. The idea is that um, he had led a life up to this point of bubbling up with unbridled passion and lust. Uh, Reuben's a man who is driven by his passions, his impulses. Not a good characteristic for a leader. He lacks self-control. And Jacob makes reference specifically to an incident that happened earlier in Genesis chapter 35. Reuben had slept with Jacob's concubine and maid, Bilhah. And it was an incident of immorality and likely an attempt to usurp Jacob's position. And get this, it happened 20 years or so before this. That's 20 years ago. I'm thinking Reuben might think that was way in the past. He's lived past that. He might have even thought it was totally hidden. But Jacob knew. And Jacob hadn't forgotten. Uh, there's an indication here that his brothers are possibly hearing this for the first time. And I say that because there's a shift from the you statements to all of a sudden saying, He went up to my couch. As though he's informing the other brothers. It's really a shameful moment in the room. It's a disgrace for Reuben and his future descendants. As I mentioned earlier from verse 28, each son received the blessing suitable for him. And this is the humbling word that Reuben had to receive with his blessing. Yes, you will be blessed as a tribe. You'll have your descendants. You'll get your land. But with great loss with what could have been. And as with all these other tribes, this identity sort of actually takes form in the tribe itself. The tribe of Reuben, if you go through Scripture, is kind of marked often by instability like their father. Here's a couple of examples from later Scripture. In the book of Numbers, chapter 16, you remember the account of the men who decided to join the rebellion of Korah against Moses and Aaron, Dathan and Abiram. They were Reubenites. 
acting impulsively, joining in this rebellion. It sounded good at the time. The result was that the earth swallowed them up. Uh, Later, before entering the the conquest of the promised land, it was again the tribe of Reuben who made hasty requests to have land beyond the Jordan because they wanted to take care of their cattle. They were supposed to wait for God's timing and his allotment of the land, but they were hasty and they wanted what was best for themselves. Always immediate gratification. And that choice actually leads to later turmoil with the tribe, even a near civil war. Impatient. Impulsive with desire. These are not the ones to be the leading tribe. In Judges, they're known for being a very unstable tribe when they're called for battle by Deborah. Don't even show up. As Jacob predicted, Reuben had no preeminence. The statements about the tribe of Reuben are bad enough, uh, more significant than what was said What was said about him is what is not said about Reuben in the Bible. This was an interesting study. Uh, To our knowledge, the tribe of Reuben never produced a single military leader, never had a judge, never had a king, and there were no prophets from Reuben. And not really anyone important in Israel's history at all. In fact, when Moses blessed the tribes at the end of Deuteronomy before his death, He's blessing all the tribes. He actually says a prayer for Reuben that it wouldn't become extinct. Great potential. But instead, Reuben has great loss. And it's traced to instability. Well, there's a few lessons that here we can draw from Reuben as God's people. All Scripture is profitable. What is Scripture teaching us through the example of Reuben? Well, there's a few I'd like to kind of point out. I I came up with a couple. For one thing, we learn here that greater privilege requires greater responsibility. Greater privilege requires greater responsibility. Jesus put it this way, to whom much is given, much is required. There are many among God's people in the world today and in history who have more light given to them and more privilege than many saints in history. And we will all give an account to the Lord with how we steward those resources. Perhaps one of the privileges is our position in the world with the many freedoms we have for the Great Commission. It could be the amount of exposure and access we have to biblical material. It's at our fingertips. We should be studying the Scriptures. It could be the amount of wealth and resources we've been given, which can go to the furtherance of the Great Commission. God is the giver of every privilege we have, and to whom much is given, much is required. And this is what makes our squandering of these privileges, all the more an affront to Him when we give an account. That's one lesson we could learn from Reuben. We could have great potential and miss out. A second lesson to learn from Reuben, we learn from him we may be forgiven and blessed by God, 
yet still bear sin's consequences on earth. We may be forgiven and blessed by God, yet still bear sin's consequences on earth. Now, I want to clarify, it is true that in an ultimate sense, the penalty for sin, the wrath of God and eternal hell, has been eliminated. We're no longer under any condemnation in God's court. However, that does not mean that the sins we commit in this life do not produce earthly effects that we and others have to still experience. The wound may be healed, but the effects and the scars of sin remain. And with regard to eternity, our security as a believer is there. Our salvation can't get forfeited. But the New Testament does teach that we can incur loss of heavenly reward. There's much to still be gained as a Christian. There's much that can still be lost as a Christian. So beware of sin's consequences. Beware of a a hyper-grace that just assumes we're all on the even playing field and so there's no real consequences to sin that we have to worry about. That's a lie from the enemy. That's not in the Bible. There are consequences. And in Reuben's case, as with many in Scripture, it could be one sin that devastates a whole life. Think about Moses with the promised land. One hasty sin and and he's out. He has to die on a mountain. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. Sometimes just one sin can bring God's hammer down. Uh, These are sobering lessons we glean from the first tribe in the legacy of Reuben. Well, that is quite a a whopping blessing. (laughs) Um, Jacob next turns to not one, but two of his next-born sons, uh, Simeon and Levi. And imagine how they're feeling at this point as he turns to them. This was supposed to be a, a time of blessings, and it is. It's a lot more stern than they, what they were expecting. Simeon and Levi are turned to next. And they're the only ones who are joined together as he's giving out the blessings. Let's read what he says. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. I want to pause at that point and point out an obvious thing. They're all brothers, right? Well, why is he pointing out they're brothers? Um, Yes, they're all brothers, but the point that Jacob is actually making here is that these two brothers are actually really close as brothers. They're, They're closer in age. They're closer in their interests and also in their outlook in life. Their temperaments and everything else. They conspire together. We might say thick as thieves. And so he kind of joins them together when he's talking to them. Look at what he continues. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, 
Reuben's rebuke was bad. These two are not faring much better. Jacob points out, as he's kind of looking down the room and passing the baton of that birthright blessing, he says, Reuben, no, not for you. And unstable. He looks at these next two, and he says, no, you are violent and cruel. You are known for your swords. Uh, these are the last people that should be given a position of leadership. And Jacob says in verse 6, that they form their own council. That means they're, they're always seen together. Every time they're talking, every time they're plotting something, something is afoot. And the idea is that Jacob is saying, keep me out of it. I don't want any part of it. I don't want to hand any blessing to that council they have going on. They're what we would call today uh, partners in crime. And that's actually a good title for it because he actually mentions a specific crime that they had. Like Reuben, it also took place much earlier in the Genesis story. But the disgrace wasn't forgotten. Their deed is recounted in Genesis 34, and it's really one of the most brutal and, and diabolical conspiracies in all of Scripture. And you don't have to turn there, but I'll just give you the sort of summarized version of what these two men did. Uh, their only sister, Dinah, had been seduced by a Canaanite prince named Shechem. The idea really is that she was probably raped. And Jacob is approached by the father requesting that the two join in marriage. Uh, indicating that, you know, you're, you guys are living in the land over here. We're living in this city these two are already together. Let's just join our families together. And perhaps a lot of our sons and daughters can join together. And we could just share resources and live uh, in prosperity with this interracial bond. Obviously, this wasn't God's will for Israel, His people. And Simeon and Levi get wind of this. And they're actually rightly upset about how their sister was disgraced. And even this suggestion from the prince, the prince's father. The problem is their anger was far from righteous. They're what we would call overreactors. Simon and Levi took it upon themselves to plan a ruse against the men. And it's one of the craftiest plans in the Bible. They come to the Canaanites and they reminded them, probably in a very noble-sounding way, that, oh, we, we would love to give our daughters to your people, but there is an issue. God has our, our sons circumcised, and we can't give our daughters to uncircumcised men. However, you know, we were thinking about this, I'm giving you the, the summary here. If the men of your city agree to get circumcised, we could probably work something out. Perhaps, you, yeah, we could join our sons and daughters together, live in the land in prosperity. I mean, if you guys are willing to do that. The prince named Shechem, is, he deems this basically a small price to pay for giving his son in this marriage and all that would come from it. He agrees, and in the account, he commands all the men of the city to be circumcised at once. Same day, everyone must be circumcised. And without getting into the, the physical mechanics of circumcision, 
It says that on the third day, the males of the city were all sore. And this was part of Simeon and Levi's plan all along. Because on this day, when the men were feeling sore from their circumcision, and you can just imagine, they could barely even get up, Simeon and Levi charged into the city with their swords and viciously slaughtered all the men who lived there who couldn't adequately defend themselves. That's brutal. It's a bloodthirsty, inhumane massacre. Not God's way of doing things. And to add to this, they even plundered the city just to show the the fleshly bent that was involved in this. Uh, Jacob even adds in this prophecy that they had hamstrung the oxen, uh, indicating that they even before they left, they made the animals crippled so that they couldn't get up and and roam and find pasture or, or get water. The animals were all left there with the dead men just to slowly stay there and rot to their death. I mean, this is cruelty. Cruelty. And it brought disgrace and even danger upon Jacob and the covenant family. These two men cannot be leaders. And while we can sympathize with their outrage over their sister's disgrace, uh, they went beyond what I think we would all consider vigilante justice. It wasn't even just against the perpetrator. It's against a whole community of people. And it's an uncontrolled rage. And it's brutal. And it's deceptive. In verse 7, Jacob foretells the consequence for their tribes. This is what was suitable to them. Their descendants will be divided. Divided, just as they were close together, conspiring. Never will your tribes ever conspire. You will be divided and scattered in the land. In other words, when the tribes settle in the promised land, years and years later, centuries later, neither tribe would get their own allotments. Simeon and Levi would be divided through dwelling in divided areas and within cities of the other tribes. But not as their own separate tribal inheritances. Well, there are some lessons here. And this played out exactly as it says in God's Word. Here are some lessons. Well, for one thing that we could learn about Simeon and Levi, we learn that Zeal, without the guidance of God's principles, is ultimately destructive. That's something I learned from this. Zeal, without the guidance of God's principles, is ultimately destructive. This is important as a reminder for God's people because zeal and even anger itself is not the problem. In fact, I would say many times, even in the history of the church, indignation is sort of the beginning of a great zealous movement that could do a lot of good. We need zeal. There should be indignation with the evil in our world. I think about how Jesus reacted to false teachers and exploiters of the people with righteous anger. And springing from this was zeal for His Father's house. Uh, these are, there are good, righteous reactions against evil. 
And zeal has often moved God's people to call out evil and to even to bring reform where it is needed. But there is a warning label on the virtue of zeal. Read the warning label. When zeal swerves from being centered on the Lord and His standards, it can become more destructive than what it is reacting against. Destructive to lives. Also damaging to the reputation of Christ. When you don't consult the Word of God and how He wants to bring about His purposes. Maybe it begins good, but you don't really go by the means God has. Or you ignore the boundaries He has put in place and the wisdom Scripture gives us. It leads to destructive tendencies. For example, it could be good to engage evil within one's government. Christians have many times done that. But uh, starting an armed insurrection would fall outside of God's intended will for the church. And it would end up just polluting the cause of God with the impulses of the flesh. It's one thing to want to engage in the banning of abortion. That's a righteous indignation. It's another thing to decide to make a conspiracy to bomb a clinic. God has a means for His intended ends. And zeal is good, but zeal left unchecked by the principles of God's Word is destructive. Proverbs 19.2 says, It is not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. And such was the misguided fleshly zeal of Simeon and Levi. Interestingly, though, you have to sort of fast forward in your Bible as you're tracing the fulfillment of these things, we start to see glimmers of God's grace, even in this. Although their consequence was the same in being divided and scattered, when you fast forward in your Bible, you see their legacies and their outcome are quite different. The tribe of Levi in Exodus demonstrated a real repentance and a new way of channeling their zeal because they were the ones who stood with the Lord when Moses confronted the people in the worship of the golden calf. And for this, God graciously made them zealous servants among the people of Israel and Israel was blessed as the priestly tribe. This demonstrates a positive lesson On the flip side, zeal with the guidance of the Lord and His principles is a great blessing. Zeal with the guidance of the Lord and His principles is a great blessing. And it always has been the case. And I think it's as though God in His providence in history holds up the descendants of Simeon and holds up the descendants of Levi as a contrast between unrighteous zeal and what it accomplishes and rightly channeled zeal for the cause of the Lord. Simeon's tribe never seems to repent of this uncontrolled impulses in their zeal. In Numbers 25, it's recorded that a a Simeonite named Zimri, participated in the heinous account of the idolatrous immorality known as Israel's sin at Baal Peor. And in interesting irony, it is a Levite named Phinehas 
who is commended for his zeal to put Zimri to death. It's a fascinating account. It's actually an irony. A Levite kills a Simeonite. It's irony because the two brothers who had once partnered in violent deaths, now, fast forward, their tribes are now against each other. One tribe, Levi, kills someone from the other on God's side. And this, these kind of things happen in Scripture all the time. God is a, a providential artist that way. I want to draw out one more lesson concerning Levi tied to their repentance. Because I was just, this, this was just profound as I thought about it. One final lesson from Levi. God can even use the results of our sin to serve His purposes in our lives. God can even use the results of our sin to serve His purposes in our lives. Now there's a caution there. Don't take that and apply that as a sin that grace may abound because that's, i got Scriptures for you if that's the application you want to make with it. Uh, the point here is you are not beyond the bounds of God's providence. We might be tempted to be discouraged after hearing about Reuben's case, that consequences come as a result of sin. But there's a providential, gracious lining around that if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are more than a conqueror through Him who loves you. And all things, even the consequences of sin, must work together for your good. I mean, think about this. Uh, the very scattering, which was Levi's consequence for sin, being scattered around Israel, became the means of the whole nation having access to a priestly tribe. The scripture says the Levites had no inheritance because the Lord was their inheritance. And they're scattered throughout the other tribes that they might serve priestly functions away from the base of the tabernacle. A curse became a blessing. And this could happen with any believer who lives within the consequences of their past sins. God is bigger than the results of your sins. I think, for example, of a Chuck Colson. If you know the legacy of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson went to prison for his involvement in the Watergate scandal. But he turned to Christ, and his prison became where he was mightily used for the Lord. And he founded a ministry called Prison Fellowship. Well, that was the result of his sin. But God, in his wisdom, turns that around and makes it for his purposes. Charles Spurgeon says this regarding Levi. Happy is that man who, though he begins with a dark shadow resting upon him, so lives as to turn even that shadow into bright sunlight. Levi gained a blessing at the hands of Moses, one of the richest blessings of any of the tribes. That's just amazing. No inheritance but the Lord. It starts with a sin and a curse, ends up being a blessing for the rest of the nation. So, Levi, your name is redeemed. <laughs> Having gone through these first three sons who received words of disdain from Jacob, he then turns his attention to his fourth son. And it's the final son we will look at 
as we conclude for the day. He turns then to his fourth son, to Judah. Now at this point, I'm sure Judah is wondering what stern words are coming his way. Uh, He must be swallowing hard at this point because he didn't have the best moral record either. If you study Genesis, he was involved in some really bad sin. And Jacob knew it. Uh, Judah, earlier in Genesis, had impregnated Tamar, who was the wife of his deceased son. Now, he didn't realize it was her at the time, but that doesn't really help his moral case because he confused her for a prostitute he was visiting. I mean, this is terrible. This is like something you find on a reality show on trash TV. And Jacob turns to him now, and he must be going, oh, great. Maybe he's sort of in the corner. Verse 8, Jacob turns to him. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Say that again. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. I imagine Judah is astonished that not a harsh word is spoken against him. It's announced to him that the baton of patriarchal blessing and leadership will be within his tribe. Now this is just one aspect of the birthright blessing. The birthright was actually split between Judah and Joseph with the leadership element falling to Judah The other element of the double inheritance would fall to Joseph and his two sons. But I'm going to get into that next week when I get to Joseph. But the leadership is assigned to Judah. Judah is given this recognition of leadership among his brothers and their future tribes. Judah will have the preeminence. Now I want to sort of clear the name of Judah a little bit. Although he had his own rotten trash track record, it's also a trash record, I guess. Track record, morally, uh, there are instances throughout Genesis where it does seem he had potential to be a noble leader. Uh, It was Judah who was the one who often spoke for his brothers when he had to appear before Joseph in Egypt. And when the youngest son Benjamin's life was on the line, It was Judah who interceded on his behalf to take his life instead. And so in his own way, imperfect as he was, Judah demonstrated the ideal of the sacrificial leader who interceded on behalf of his brothers. Now maybe you could see where this is going in God's selection of a leader. Judah becomes the typological sacrificial leader from whom the sacrificial reigning, interceding Messiah will eventually come. But more on that in just a bit. First, I want to consider a brief lesson God's people can draw from this lesson of leadership in Judah. One lesson is, it is a gracious gift of God to provide leadership among His people. I just feel compelled to draw that out. It is a gift of God to provide leadership among His people. 
It was always in His plan when He was governing His people. Although we're all God's people, and we all share in privilege, all of us have an equal standing before Him spiritually, but there are still roles and gifts that He assigns for the good of His people. And one of those, both in ancient Israel and in the church, is that He has specially assigned some to be leaders. And the New Testament doesn't just give this you know, lightly. Their leaders are to be carefully qualified leaders. But congregants are to submit under the guidance and the shepherding and oversight of leaders as those who keep watch over their souls. This is God's gracious design for the, for the structure and the holiness of the church. There are sometimes uh, believers who have a tendency to think that it's okay to sort of be this rogue Christian doing things for the kingdom of God. I remember talking to someone years ago, a friend of mine, who was telling me about all these things he wanted to do. He wanted to see revival and he had all these plans for the kingdom. And I asked him what church he's a part of, worshiping right now. And he said, well, I'm not really a part of any church. I sort of see myself as all over the place helping the churches. And in a sense, our, our conversation was kind of over at that point because what do you mean you're not a part of a church? How are you going to bypass what God has instituted and do great things for the kingdom if you're not even living under the appointed means He's given? He's given elders for the accountability of the church and the blessing of the church. Believer, and you know, Leaders are not popes and they're not above being disqualified. But God has put leaders in the church. And to live outside of that and to go rogue from that is a path to ruin, even shipwreck of the faith for many. So it is good. It's a gracious gift that God appoints leadership among His people. And it seems to have always been His plan in redemptive history with every generation. The tribe of Judah would find this fulfillment throughout their time as Israel was forming as a nation. As I sort of showed you the different fulfillments. Uh, Judah has also fulfillment of this in their time, in the centuries that follow. Uh, They have the largest census in the book of Numbers. Uh, Their tribe was the one that led in the procession through the wilderness for 40 years. Judah is the one who led the way when there was battle in conquest. Verse 9 elaborates on this conquest by comparing Judah to a lion's cub. He says, From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. Who dares rouse him? Uh, Judah is like the lion's cub because the lion's cub and the lioness are the hunter. They're the leader of the pack. And the language here is more than just power, but fierce and even dangerous. Uh, You try to rouse a lion while he's eating something. You try to kind of pull his prey away from him, and you become the prey. It says in verse 8, he will be on the necks of his enemies, which is also like a lion upon its prey. In fact, David, later on in the monarchy, in his his own fulfillment of the Judean conqueror, uh, he uses this exact phrase in 2 Samuel. Uh, He says that God gave to him the necks of his enemies. 
And of course, with David, the tribe of Judah sort of reaches its zenith in leadership in the Old Testament as it was covenantally established in the royal line of kings that would come from the Judean monarchy. This is what's prophesied in the verses that follow. Popular verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's step from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now the glory of this prophecy about Judah is that there is both a near and far fulfillment in redemptive history. I like the analogy of uh, the way to look at near and far fulfillment. It's like looking at mountain ranges. If you have a, a frontal perspective, you might see multiple mountain ranges, mountain ranges, and they look like one mountain range. But you don't have that side view. Uh, if you were to look at it more properly, those mountain ranges might have huge expans- expanses between them and large valleys. They might stretch distances from each other, perhaps hundreds of miles. And as Jacob looks ahead to this fulfillment of these things, just as the other prophets do, uh, he sees all the fulfillments looking like they're together as part of the same Judean mountain range. And he doesn't see the gaps of time that exist. In the near sense, the centuries that follow in Judah's history approved their preeminence among the tribes and the nations of the world. They fulfilled this royal leadership role. But beyond this, in further and consummate fulfillment, this prophecy extended beyond to Jesus the Messiah who would proceed from the royal Judean line and become the King of kings over His people and all the nations. Jesus is the ultimate mountain peak, so to speak. Only to Him can this really be said that the scepter will not depart from Him. That He can be ascribed an eternal reign. Only to Him belongs the obedience of all the peoples. And He will be the sacrificial leader of His people and of remnants from every nation. And also, the the earlier verses of conquest also apply to him in an ultimate sense, as he will also judge his enemies as the fierce lion. The prophecy of Judah concludes by combining his victorious conquest over his enemies with the universal glorious prosperity of his eternal reign. Look at verses 11 and 12. The last verses we'll look at. Speaking of his eternal reign, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now this is a a poetic combination of concepts here. Uh, From a prosperous standpoint, his kingdom is celebrated with the choicest of wine. Wine is often used to to signify gladness and blessing and abundance in the kingdom. From another standpoint, and in that prosperity, by the way, he's even washing his garments in the wine. That's how prosperous his reign will be. From another standpoint, with regard to judgment, the wine is like blood upon his garments. 
It says his vesture in the blood of grapes. This imagery is actually picked up by both Zechariah and later John in Revelation. They pick up this sign that his garments are covered with blood with his victory and war upon those who resist him. Uh, The point is that to those who resist the Messiah, this coming eternal king, he is a terror as a warrior king. Uh, To those who submit and serve under his rule, they dwell within the safety of his prosperous and joyful and abundant blessed reign. The wine is often used as a symbol of God's kingdom abundance. This is actually one of the reasons Jesus gave a foretaste of the kingdom at the beginning of his ministry by turning water into abundant wine, choice wine. And at the close of his ministry, in the upper room, he's seen drinking wine with his disciples, telling them about the day he would drink new wine with them in his Father's kingdom. This wine imagery with regard to Messiah's kingdom is actually a good transition to our time of communion. The final lesson I would like to draw out from our study of the tribes. We saw how Judah brought leadership, which is a gracious gift. A second lesson. Redemptive history is all about the Redeemer. We learn from Judah that really all of these blessings and all of these tribes, it's really not ultimately about them. It's really not ultimately about God's people. It's about another. It's about one to come. And for us, one who has come and is coming again. It's about the Redeemer. And Israel needed to know this. Israel needed to lock in on this. They were not going to be the instrument of God's final blessing. Yes, they would be used, but they were not going to bring the redemption. This would be centered in Jesus, the Messiah, from the tribe of Judah. And it becomes clear why this whole arrangement of covenant and blessing in history exists in the first place. It was always the plan of God in Christ to reconcile the world to Himself. Israel and the world's need for redemption points to the Redeemer. I mentioned earlier that the tribes Moses was writing to in this book uh, were those who had made a covenant based on the condition of faithfulness. If they could live up to God's laws, the tribes, then in and through them would be the fulfillment of blessing, of salvation, and restoration long anticipated for the world. That was, again, the plan on paper. But God had drafted the ultimate plan. The ultimate plan was to show that no one could pull it off. Not even Israel. Not even this choice tribe of Judah. No one could meet the condition of the old covenant. No individuals, no kings, no tribes In fact, after the kingdom split between north and south in the Old Testament, Judah's dynasty held on a little longer than the northern kingdom, but ultimately also failed and brought upon themselves the curse. The land and the seed and the blessing have been seemingly threatened. 
They entered into exile with the stripping of their own land. Their descendants had many died and been deported and many scattered with an uncertain future. And the blessing upon the nations that was hoped for didn't reach fruition as those nations would instead be the instruments of judgment. That's the exile. And the real idea here is that idea here is that as God departed his presence from his people and left them out to the other nations, they were forsaken by God. Forsaken. The Babylonian captivity eventually ended and the exile in its broad sense still continued for centuries longer under Persia and Greece and Rome. No king on a throne. A priesthood that had been corrupted beyond recognition. And no prophet for 400 years. The end of the Old Testament is actually a major tragedy. When you finish your Old Testament, it is a tragedy. Because the people who were to be a blessing were judged in their sins and under the curse that the Bible began with. They couldn't fulfill the Old Covenant. And so there was a need for a new covenant. And this is where we're glad that when you turn the page in your Bible, there's a continued New Testament. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those under the curse of the law. And He would usher in this new covenant. And God sent the long-awaited Messiah from the tribe of Judah, as promised, the Lord Jesus Christ. And His mission would be to accomplish what no one could accomplish in that other covenant. The condition wouldn't be upon the people. He would fulfill the condition of faithfulness and obedience in the new covenant. He would be the faithful Jew. Jew comes from the word Judah. The faithful Judahite. And you recall I mentioned earlier that the near and far fulfillments of prophecy, like the mountain ranges. And some peaks are further away from each other. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, it's revealed that there's still going to be another expanse. Because before He can fulfill all these fulfillments as the Messianic King, He first must take care in the first stage His people's sin. He will indeed be the triumphant King. He's going to judge His enemies. He's going to restore creation and the world from the curse, the full extent of the curse. But first, His chosen people had the problem of their sins. And this is why it was such an affront that they didn't recognize their Savior, but wanted a political Messiah first. Their sins had brought them to this point. Before demonstrating Himself as the Lion, as Revelation 5 says, He would first be the Lamb who was slain. Before crushing the head of the serpent, He would first have the wound upon His heel. And if He is to be anyone's Messiah... He first must take away their sins. And with taking away their sins, what else must He take away? The curse. 
When Jesus laid aside his heavenly privileges and became incarnate, he entered into his people's exile. And he faced the ultimate curse of exile as a substitute in their place when he became forsaken on the cross, forsaken by his Father, bearing his people's sins, and becoming a curse by bearing the full brunt of the wrath of God in their place. Fulfilling the condition and taking the curse. And in doing this, He reversed the curse and extended the blessing of salvation not only to the tribes of Israel, but to remnants from every tribe of the earth. All who would call upon His name. And this is what we remember. We remember the abundance of the kingdom blessing that is coming. But we remember what it cost. Your sins cost this. The severity due to us fell upon Him. And I, I tend to think as I was studying this, I tend to think that God might have arranged those first few deplorable tribes, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, with their grisly sin and consequences, maybe He put them first just so He could put on greater display the grace that would come through the descendant of Judah. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Father, as we contemplate and remember the grand scope of Your redemptive plan, we realize that we could never have drafted it ourselves. We could never have thought of a better way to reverse the curse. But You have put forward Christ. You have sent Your Redeemer to reverse the curse and to give us the blessing of eternal salvation. Lord, would you bless our time? Would you bless the rest of our worship? Would, we, would it be pleasing to you as we exalt Him and champion Him in our lives? And bless our fellowship. And may it be centered around Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.